how to fulfill your manhood or your womanhood. For after all, that's the same thing. God is interested in producing men and women. And that's what the Bible aims to do. And it's a tremendously effective instrument to do it in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And then we tried to see what the Old Testament contributes to that that goal, and then what the New Testament contributes to it is a distinctive section of the Word of God. And then recall, we went back through the Old Testament and we took each division of it in the fivefold division of the Old Testament and saw how each division moves toward the goal the Old Testament contributes to the goal of making you mature in Christ. And then we went to the New Testament with its fivefold division and saw how it moves in the same way to this goal. And now, on the broader base, we, are bege- we have begun going through the Old Testament book by book, seeing the message of each book. And we've come now to the prophet Jonah, the book of Jonah, the book that is probably more misunderstood than any other book of the Bible and perhaps the most known of all the books of the Bible, the greatest fish story in the Bible. And it's widely misunderstood for two particular reasons. First, because of the fish story. Uh, Jonah and the whale have become a, a part of our, of our literature, a part of our mythical, legendary history. At least that's the way the world views it. The story of Jonah and the whale has become a byword among people. And the book is looked upon with scorn and laughed out of the Bible as being kind of a a uh, fictionalized narrative, much as Gulliver's Travels would be, something like that. It's not taken seriously, it's not taken historically. And they make all kinds of bad jokes about the book of Jonah. Uh, someone has said, when you're down in the mouth, remember Jonah, he came out all right, and so on. And that's the result of its treatment as a, as a legendary book. And then it's also known as, uh, because of its reference to Jonah as a, as a jinx, as a voodoo, as kind of a bad luck charm. Uh, you remember in the story, when Jonah was found in the boat on the way to Tarshish as he was fleeing from God, the, the great storm arose and his, his companions asked what it was that was causing this storm. And Jonah says, it's me. And they threw him into the sea in order to get rid of the bad luck that was following the boat. And Jonah, the, the book is known because of that emphasis. As we call somebody that's a jinx, we call him a Jonah. Now, all of this has obscured the true message of this book. Uh, Jonah was a historical character. He's mentioned in other places in Scripture. He's referred to in the book of First, uh, Second Kings as a historical prophet, a prophet ministering to Israel in the days of Jeroboam. And he's referred to by none other authority than the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so must the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And uh, with this kind of backing, I don't think there's any question but what we can take the book of Jonah as historically accurate. Now, the true message of this book, therefore, if we look behind the fishiness of it, is found in the two chapters that close this little book. In the last two chapters, 
you have the story of Jonah, after his encounter with the whale, or the fish, going to Nineveh, as God had originally sent him, and proclaiming the message God sent him to proclaim. And uh, when you ask yourself the question, why did Jonah refuse to go to Nineveh originally, you get very close to the heart of the message of this book. Why did Jonah refuse to go? You know how the story opens. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. It's amazing when you're trying to run away from God, how often you find a ship right there, ready at hand. But there's something wonderful about this man, Jonah. He was a great man, really. I like one special thing about him. It says he paid his fare to Tarshish. He paid the fare. If he's going to be disobedient, at least he wanted to be honest about it. And he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Then came the great storm. The other voyagers, the mariners, cast him into the sea. A great fish swallowed him. The second chapter is the story of his prayer to God out of the belly of the fish. And the fish got a terrible stomach ache, vomited him up on the land. And in chapter 3, we're told, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. There's a, word, there's a note of sternness about that, isn't there? And God hasn't changed his mind a bit. He's changed the prophet, finally, but he hasn't changed his mind about what he wanted to say to Nineveh. Now, what was it that made Jonah so anxious to avoid this commission? Why did he not want to go to Nineveh? And flee from God like this. Well, there are those who suggest that uh, he had such a primitive idea of God, he re regarded him as just a tribal deity, uh, just for Israel alone, that he thought God was really not interested in Nineveh. And so he thought if he could get out of the land, he'd get away from God. Now, that idea, I think, is scotched by... Jonah's own reference to God in the ninth verse of the first chapter, when the voyagers asked who he was, he said to them, I, uh, he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now that doesn't sound like a tribal deity to me, does it? No, this is not why God, or Jonah didn't go to Nineveh. The answer is that Jonah knew God too well. That's why he didn't go to Nineveh. Does that sound strange? Well, look at chapter 4, the first two verses. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. That is, when the city of Nineveh repented. It displeased him exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord. And he said, I pray thee, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and repentest of evil. 
because Jonah knew that God was that way, he wouldn't go to Nineveh. Now, this is very interesting, isn't it? The key to it is the last phrase. Jonah says, I knew you, God. I knew you're the kind that repents from evil if you get a chance. God had said to this prophet, now go to Nineveh and announce to them 40 days and the city shall be overthrown. Now, that's exactly what Jonah wanted. He wanted to see this city destroyed. This was the great enemy of his people. Perhaps Jonah had seen these cruel, ruthless, bloody uh, Ninevites coming down into his land, as they did from time to time, raiding his people. And even perhaps he had suffered the loss of loved ones at the hands of these, these cruel people. In the record of the ancient world, perhaps the record for the most vicious and uh, bloody kinds of cruelty belongs to the Ninevites. They found more ways to be, to be just incredibly unkind and cruel than any other nation that's ever lived. They were brutal and godless and sinful. And uh, Jonah hated them. You can see this in this prophecy as you read it. And the one thing he wanted above everything else was to see Nineveh destroyed. Yet when God told him to go and announce the destruction of this city, he said, I know you too well, O God. You're the kind that if anybody gives you half a chance by repenting, you'll change your mind and won't do it. And so he fled away to Tarshish. Now that's amazing, isn't it? What a revelation of the knowledge of God and of the character of the God of the Old Testament. Have you heard the... the uh, charge that's made from time to time by those who, who don't believe the Bible, primarily by those who are educated beyond their intelligence, <laughs> who say that the God of the Old Testament was a vengeful, wrathful God, that he was a God of black thunderclouds and bolts of lightning, and that he, he was always pouring out judgment upon people. But do you find that here? That isn't the kind of God Jonah knew. He says, I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love and repentest of evil. Well, that's what sent him to Tarshish anyway. And when he came back, even after his trip in a living submarine, he still was reluctant. <laughs> after three days and nights in that fish's belly, he still didn't want to deliver this message very badly, but he remembered the fish's belly, and he went. And he came to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. And we're told Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Now, that means a city that it would take three normal days' journey to cross. Uh, a, a day's journey was usually reckoned at about 12 miles. And a three days journey would be 36 miles. Here's a city that's 36 miles in diameter. That's a pretty good sized city. That would be about the distance from here to the northern tip of San Francisco. And it was a big city. 
uh, a cluster of cities, actually, much like Los Angeles is, kind of a, a lot of suburbs looking for a city that had clustered together around the banks of the Tigris River. And uh, into this great city, the capital of the Syrian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, uh, uh, Jonah came to declare the message that God gave to him. And he went about, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he cried, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And he went about the city with this one message, forty more days, and your city will be laid waste. Forty more days, and God's going to destroy this city. Now, ordinarily, that kind of a message wouldn't get much of a reception. It wouldn't today, and it wouldn't then. There have been other reports in, in the Bible of prophets sent with a message like that to a people, and the people paid no attention to it. But the amazing thing about this story is that we read the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And when the king heard about it, he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he made a proclamation. <laughs> Sounds like they had a Christian leadership week going on there, doesn't it? And he published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast, even the animals were involved in this, be covered with sackcloth and let them cry mightily to God. Yea, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence which is in his hands. Now, that's what they said. But they also did it. Because we read, when God saw what they did, and not just what they heard, what they said, but when he saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God repented of the evil which he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, this city was spared. What made them listen to this message of Jonah? Well, you know, this would be a mystery to us, always would be, I think, if it were not for the clues supplied by the Lord Jesus Christ himself in the, in the New Testament. In the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 11, our Lord refers to this account of Jonah's, and he says these words. Luke 11, verse 30. For as Jonah became a sign to the men of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, he drew this parallel, not I. He said, Jonah... Himself, the man, the prophet, was a sign to the city of Nineveh. And in just that same manner, I, the Lord Jesus Christ, will be a sign to the whole generation. He meant Israel, but he meant the whole race of man beyond that. As Jonah was a sign to Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be a sign to his generation. Now, this is very suggestive, and there are Bible scholars who feel that what happened here was that Jonah's face and countenance was changed by his experience in the belly of the whale. 
There are some interesting historical, uh, historically verified incidents in uh, contemporary history of men who have been swallowed by fishes, very much like Jonah. If you'd like to read an account like that, I suggest you get Harry Rimmer's book. Um, what's his? What's the name of it? Uh, on the Bible. Mm, the name of the book slips my mind right now. It's in our uh, church library here, in which he gives an account of of a man whom he talked to in England, who had been a, a, a sailor aboard a ship, had fallen overboard, and had been swallowed by a fish. And a day or two later, the fish was seen lying on the surface of the water. The fish was captured and taken to shore. And when he was opened up, to the amazement of the sailors, they found their shipmate aboard, alive. And he survived the experience. But his, his skin was turned uh, uh, chalky white. And for the rest of his life, he was a chalky white color. Now... Dr. Harry Rimmer met him, talked with him, and learned the details of this experience. It was clearly verified. There have been other accounts like this, or probably a half a dozen of them altogether, that have clearly established that this is quite a possibility. It has happened, beside the story of Jonah. Now, I'm not emphasizing this, nor am I proclaiming this as the doctrine of Scripture, but I'm suggesting that this may well be what's involved in this. There are some people that are so busy trying to find the measurements of a fish's belly that they never see God in the book of Jonah. And the message of this book, of course, is not what, so much what happened to Jonah, but the results in Nineveh when Jonah rose up to preach. Now, here's, you can imagine what happened in this city if something like this occurred. If Jonah's face and his, his whole body confirmed the remarkable story that I'm sure was widely circulated among the Ninevites, that this man had just gone through this harrowing experience, that he had been swallowed alive by a fish, but he had been vomited out and God had sent him to proclaim this message. And you can imagine the effect upon the city as this man went about proclaiming that God was going to do what he said. He had living evidence uh, documentary proof in his own being that God meant what he said. That when he said something, he was going to do it. And the city repented to a man. And therefore, the judgment of God was stayed. Now, don't have any trouble over the fact that it says God repented. That's only from our human point of view. God knew all the time that it would happen this way. But God's message, when believed always seems to change his mind, but actually it carries forward his purpose. We know that. And so the city was spared, and it wasn't until a hundred years later that God carried out the judgment on this city, and Nineveh was actually destroyed. But they gained a, a breathing space by the repentance here that came at the preaching of Jonah. Now, there follows in chapter 4, a story of an encounter between Jonah and God. Ordinarily, this book would be over at chapter 3, when the great city lies there in sackcloth and ashes, repentant before God. But this isn't what this book is after. It's trying to get us into the very heart of God. And so we read that when Jonah was angry, he announced to God why he had tried to run away. 
He said, I know the kind of God you were. And sure enough, that's exactly what you did. When the city repented, you changed your mind. And he says, I'm angry. And God said to him, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah didn't even answer. He went out on the, on the rim rock above the city and sat down and waited to see what God would do. I don't know how long had gone by, but he must have waited a few days there. And uh, the first day, the Lord God appointed a plant. It's interesting to read these words. God prepared a plant, appointed it. And the plant grew up and covered Jonah's head, an evidence of the gracious provision of God. But on the second day, God prepared a worm. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? He really gets right down to worms, even. He appointed a worm which attacked the plant so that it withered. And then, when the sun came up, God prepared or appointed an east wind that blew the heat of the desert in upon Jonah. And the poor fellow sat there sweating and, and suffering and suffocating until he fainted and uh, asked that he might die. And God said again to him, Well, Jonah, are you ready to give me your answer? I asked you a question. Do you do well to be angry? And he asked it again. And this prophet is so stubborn, I can't believe it. He said, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And you know, it's easy to point the finger at Jonah, but have you ever said that? God. Have you ever said to him, I want what I want. I don't care what you do. Of course I'm angry. I don't like the way you're running things. Take me away. Take me to heaven. And now notice what God said. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. You feel sorry about that and sorry for yourself about it. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? That's a Hebrew way of describing children. Children, 120,000 little children. He said, you can take pity on a plant, but you can't take pity on a great city filled with children and people who don't know their way, who don't know their God, and many cattle and all these things. And then the book abruptly ends. Why? Well, because that's where it wanted to take us, to the revelation of the heart of God. God loved these people. God loved these Ninevites, even though Jonah hated them. And I sometimes think there's an awful lot of Jonah in us, don't you? Sometimes we act as though we'd be delighted if tomorrow morning in the paper we read that Moscow lay in smoldering, smoking ruins, wouldn't we? But God loves the Russians and the Chinese and those that we desecrate as our enemies, and they are enemies, not trying to avoid facing facts, but God loves them as he loved the enemies of Israel and would spare them if there was a sign of repentance among them. And he sent us 
with a message to them to declare this word as Jonah. Do you see how suddenly and subtly the Holy Spirit has insinuated us into this picture? Around us are these unsaved people, the godless, we call them, the beatniks and the vietniks and the lawless and the disobedient. And we look at them and say, revolting, disgusting. They deserve damnation. And yet we sit and sing of God's tender grace and his mercy and his compassion, but we don't want to go and say anything to them. Now, I'm not sitting in judgment on you tonight. I stand at the bar of God with you on this. But I'm asking your heart as I'm asking mine, isn't there an awful tendency to be like a Jonah among us? And have we really caught the sense of the heart of God, the throb, the heartbeat of God, who loves a world that is staggering on in blinded, willful ignorance, in darkness, who do not know where they're going, and that's why they act the way they do. And he sent us as, a, as men and women to be a sign to this generation. What's the sign? Why, it's the sign of Jonah, the sign of a resurrection, the sign of people who once were dead, who have been made alive in Jesus Christ. Isn't that why the Lord said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth? Isn't that the central message of our Christian faith? Isn't that the heart of our proclamation? That here's a God who brings life from the dead, who can resurrect those who have been down in the dark belly of a whale, of a fish, lost, hopeless, but redeemed. And the witness are the resurrected lives of those of us who, like Jonah, have this message to declare to our day. Well, I don't know any book in the Bible that unfolds the heart of God like this book. And I'm going to leave it right there. Our Father... Thank you for this look at this book and through it at our own hearts. How like this stubborn prophet we are, intent upon our own little goals, our own little comforts, and unconcerned about those who lie around us, whose hearts cry out to thee and move thy heart with tender compassion toward them. God grant that we may we may feel like you feel, to have pity on this great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot tell the right hand from the left. And Lord, we pray that our hearts might reflect thy heart and show thy love and compassion to these in the declaring the message of truth. In Jesus' name, amen.